Good morning. If we've never met, my name is Gabe. I'm one of the elders here. So glad that you guys are with us. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab one. Go to Hebrews chapter 4 uh, is where we're going to land. Uh, see you, kiddos. You guys have fun in kids' church. Um, while you're flipping, who had a fun week this last week? I mean, good gracious. 2020 is just great. Who, just curious, who's still without power? The stinky corner in the back. Uh, if you are without power, there are a lot of people around that didn't raise their hand. We all just volunteered to serve you guys. So whatever you need, those around you got you, Co. Did you hear that? I'm talking to you, Co. Did you hear that? Let me hear. Yes, sir. There we go. Thank you. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's just been a crazy week. Who knows what's going to happen this next week, but I'm glad that we can just sit together, gather around the Word of God, and, and place our hope and trust in that alone. Um, so uh, as we're getting into Hebrews 4, let me just ask one quick question, uh, because it's something for me, I, I'm a little bit more entrepreneurial, a little bit more of a dreamer, I like to cast vision, create, Any, anybody else like that? Um, cool. All right. So there's one. Here's the question that me and you will like enjoy and everyone else will like, what are you talking about? Uh, that was my best Phyllis impersonation, by the way. Um, what would you do? Here's the question. What would you do if you could not fail? What would you do if you knew that you couldn't fail? Now, some of you that just adds so much anxiety to your life right now. Don't even don't sweat it. Don't worry about it. But for others, like, that just jazzes us up. It's one of the main reasons we planted a church was God was kind of breathing this vision into us. And, and then the question just kept coming around, well, like, what would we do if we wouldn't fail? Like, if failure wasn't an object, what would we do? We'd go plant a church. Well, then go plant a church. So, so for some of you, what would you do if you could not fail? You'd probably drop out of school right now, right? You would not go to work tomorrow you can take this job and shove it would be your song, right? Some of you, you would like finally go ask that girl, like, hey, hey you, you, want go, you, you, you want to go on a date, right? What would you do if you could not fail? And the root of this, I promise this is biblical, the root of this is this idea of confidence, that when you start thinking about what would you do if you could not fail shows you in your life where you might be lacking some confidence in, in a specific area, so you might be afraid to fail, or you might be uh, afraid to like, lose the comfort that you have, or you might be afraid to, to displease those around you, but it's going to put a thumb mark on where you lack confidence. And this morning, the author in Hebrews 4 is going to rail into us about confidence, because let me, let me just tell you the truth straight out the gate. Nothing, nothing is more terrifying to Satan than a confident Christian. Nothing would turn the world upside down quicker than a church that is confident in who Christ is and what he said he's going to do. No, nothing. There, there's no limits to the gospel movement that would happen if we were just confident in Christ. And so we see the world around us just kind of falling away, to put it very nicely. And, and the easy, we can blame political, we can do this, we can do that, blame the euro, the euro just messes everything up. But the reality is, the answer is, we have some Christians that are not confident and we're sitting idly by doing nothing. So the answer to the world falling apart, 
The answer to everything that that would make the church a force to be reckoned with, that would line up with Scripture, that the gates of hell could not prevail against the church is confidence in who Christ is. So that's what I want us to spend this morning looking at, is this this idea of just full confidence. What would it look like? So Hebrews 4, uh, just three quick verses, 14, 15, 16. Uh, Last week, Dylan uh, drew the short end of the straw and had to preach 13 verses. I've got three. Uh, But we're still in that. Hey, man, who made that preaching calendar? Not me. So don't get me out. It wasn't me. Hebrews 4, we're going to pick it up in verse 14. Hebrews 4, 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence... Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. So let us pray this morning as we study the word of God. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your words. We thank you for your truths. Father, would you give us confidence this morning? Would we be able to clearly see who you are in light of who we are and let that stir us up? to pursue the dangerous things in your name. Thank you. It's your name we pray. Amen. So, so we're kind of at this precipice, this turning point in the book of Hebrews, uh, because if you've been following along with us, we've heard a lot about Jesus and rest and, and this idea of Christology, who Jesus really is, and have gone really deep. I mean, one of the things that Dylan had to do last week is, is play this game back and forth, Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament, to really make sure we understood what was going on. And this is almost like that pause of like, hey, let me just say this, let me get your eyes up, everybody good? All right, now we're going to go right back into. So in a lot of ways, this is a synopsis of all that's been covered in the first four chapters, this little breathing mark before we go right back into the depth of Hebrews. So one theologian I read this week calls this the overlapping transition. So there's going to be a lot about Christology that was already discussed, uh, and then he's going to start to discuss some of the high priestly things that we'll see over the next couple chapters. But this is this overlapping transition. So, So just just to make sure that we're all on the same page, let me kind of catch you up on what we have discussed um, so that we'll be on the same page moving forward. Um, so look with me at Hebrews 1. I'm just going to read 3 through 4. Uh, so just t- turn back one or two pages. Hebrews 1, 3 through 4 is helping us straight out of the gate of the book of Hebrews. It's helping us to understand who Christ is. He, being Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs." So we first see just the majesty of Christ, that the angels can't touch him, that he's the firstborn of all creation, and now he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, sitting implying that it is finished, that his work has been completed. And then look with me at Hebrews 2, 14. Hebrews 2, 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, 
that through death he might destroy the one who is the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who fear of death and subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, me and you. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of people. For he himself... For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. So here we see that now Jesus is not even better than the angels, but he has defeated death, right? That death can even hold Jesus down. Then we go into chapter 3, and he labors over the fact that Jesus is the better Moses. So Jesus is better than the angels, he has defeated death, and now he's better than Moses. So we get to this end, we stop at the end of Hebrew 4 with two exhortations that we need to see. The first is hold fast to our confessions, as we'll talk to in a minute, but we We've studied this. We've seen this idea, holding fast to our confessions. But the second one we haven't really seen yet in Hebrews, which has led us then with confidence, draw near the throne of God with confidence. So, so this word in the Greek can literally be translated to bold frankness, bold frankness, or, or another way, being honest and transparent in a bold way. So we are to be bold approaching the throne of grace, that we're supposed to be bold as Christians in how we view confidence in Christ, that the confidence that we have will lead to a boldness in our lives, boldness around uh, our workplace, confidence in Christ around the Thanksgiving table where awkward conversations are coming up, the confidence in, with our employer about our faith, the confidence with our family and friends. But we have to stop for a minute and realize who this has been written to. Because confidence is the exact thing that the church in Rome is dealing with. So this is being written to a house church in Rome um, that they are already suffering persecution. They're already being pushed to the outcast of society because they are Jews and they are Christians. So because of their Jewish tradition, they have no place in Rome. And because of their now Christian faith in Christ, they have no place with their Jewish families. So they're literally on an island by themselves and martyrdom is coming. Martyrdom is, let me just stop for a second. With all this political unrest, no matter who wins a presidency, martyrdom is not coming for Christians in America. Are we good? I mean, could we just agree to that? This is not a reality for Christians in Rome. That Nero is on his way. Death is inevitable for them. So of course they're losing confidence in Christ. Of course they're starting to go, maybe there's another way. Maybe I should put my hope in this. Maybe I can split the difference here and still be like part of Rome, but then part of Jewish tradition, but then also like part of the church. Maybe I can blend all three together because they're losing confidence in who Christ is and what he's done. And so for us, let me just ask this question. How confident are you in Christ? Now, before you start to justify and rationalize, all that I just spent time describing Hebrews can be described of us, right? So, so I don't, I don't want to know your words in this question right now. I want you to look back at your actions over the last couple of years. How confident are you in Christ? 
And how then can we grow in our confidence? How can we be the church that we read about in Acts that was unstoppable? How can we be those that when we walk into a place, hey, those that are here to turn the world upside down, they're here too. How can we be so confident that even after suffering and persecution, we come out of that jail whistling and singing, rejoicing that we get counted worthy of being beaten for the name of Christ? How can we become that confident in Christ? And this is the whole premise of these four or three verses. So luckily, uh, this is a sermon. I think we've talked about this before. Uh, the Hebrews is supposed to be uh, listened to with your ears, not necessarily just read with your eyes. And because of that, as Dylan pointed out last week, this is just masterfully three points in every sermon. It's crazy. So I'm going to give you three points, of how, but it doesn't alliterate because we're really bad at being Southern Baptist. I know. Uh, but here, here's what I want us to do. Look at three points out of these three passages that my prayer is, as the same author's prayer for those that he was writing to, that our confidence would be stirred up this morning. Let's look at verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Now I just want to acknowledge something really quick. I already talked about this overlapping transition. Um, there's this word high priest that's mentioned twice. And, and here's what I'm going to not do this morning. I'm not going to elaborate much on high priest. Because from now till about chapter 10, with the exception of chapter 5 and 6, high priest is the main theme of all of those chapters. So if I did a deep dive into high priest this morning, I wouldn't have much to preach about over the next couple of weeks. But so, so what I'm going to do is just tell you what you need to know to understand this passage this morning. So the Old Testament position of high priest was preeminent. It, it was the greatest position in the priesthood. There was other priests, but, but the high priest was the one that was in charge of the day of atonement. So you can go read back of Leviticus and, and understand the Day of Atonement. But, but here's what would happen, right? He would have to walk into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the sin of the people once a year. Now this was a terrifying thing. that There was bells sewn into the high priest's garments because if he walked in there with any sin unconfessed, dude's dead right there on the spot. So he'd have to make sure he's walking around the Holy of Holies so those bells are ringing it's not Christmas time. It's a fearful time because if those bells stop ringing, high priest is dead. They're going to drag him out with a rope that's tied around his waist and throw in the next guy. So this high priest position is, is a masterful position. It's, it's one that's really high within their culture. But we see here that the priest would enter into the Holy of Holies through three different portables, portals. At first, he bore the blood through the door and the outer courts. Then he entered another door into the holy place. And then last, he entered in through the veil, through the curtain of the holy of holies. But they never got the title, the great high priest. They were just the high priest. Jesus was the great high priest. So as the high priest would pass through these different doors and curtains into the Holy of Holies, if you look at verse 14, we see that the great high priest, Jesus, has passed through the heavens. So the high priest is walking into the presence of God, but Jesus passing through the heavens actually walks face to face with God. He is the great high priest. He is the final atonement for our sins. 
And we see here that the last step for the high priest to walk into that Holy of Holies was the veil, was the curtain. But does anybody remember when Christ died, what happens in all three synoptic gospels? The veil was torn, right? was ripped open. So this is Jesus incarnate, that you don't have to pursue the Holy of Holies anymore. You don't have to have the sacrificial system because Christ is the ultimate sacrifice. But we'll, we'll keep going into that theme later. But here's what I want us to see. Because we have the great high priest, not just the high priest, let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast our confession. So the first exhortation that we have to, to grow in our confidence in Christ is to hold fast into our confession. Now this, let us hold fast, this word is used 47 times in the New Testament. And it's holding, it's telling us, it's commanding us to hold firmly to our commitment to Christ. So what does it then look like for us to hold firmly to? Because here, here's the reality for all of us, for the Hebrews, for us, we're holding firmly to something. There's something in us that we're holding firmly to, whether it be a career, whether it be a relationship, whether it be our own laziness, our own comfort, whether it be once I finish school, I'm going to do school really well so that we're all holding fast to something. We're holding firm to some commitment. But we have to ask ourselves, if, if we're supposed to have confidence in Christ, where is our commitment lying? What are we holding fast to? And here we see very clearly that this confession is what we already talked about in chapter 2 and chapter 3. That, that Jesus is the great apostle and he is the great high priest. Uh, flip just a few chapters over to Hebrews chapter 10. Because the author is going to elaborate on this one more time. So I'm going to cheat this is not supposed to be done, but I'm going to cheat just a little bit. Hebrews 10.23. Hebrews 10.23. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. So, so what is our confession? What are we supposed to hold fast to? Our hope. Our hope. Now let me just ask you, and to be honest, is that what you would describe Christ as this morning? Our one and only hope. Is that what our lives would describe Christ as, as our one and only hope? That, that when people look at us, it is evident, it is clear that we have but one hope, and that is Christ. Is that evident for us? Because if it is, then I guarantee we could just stop the sermon right now. That we have the confidence that we need. But if you're anything like me, that, that's not it. That I'm far too quick to place my hope in, in things other than Christ. In my own effort, in my white-knuckling approach is where I find my hope. In my financial resources, that's where I find my hope. In my family is where I find my hope. And this author is saying that if we must hold fast to our confession, our commitment to our hope, which is in Christ Jesus. But that is the first step to having confidence in Christ, is to hold firm, hold fast, 
our hope in Christ. But he continues. Let us look at uh, verse 15. So you can go back to Hebrews 4, 15. Hebrews 4, 15. For we do not have a high priest, again, there's that word, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Now, this, this passage gets thrown around all the time. So let me just throw this real clear uh, command. I mean, it's just obvious. I don't understand where people uh, get this disconnected, right? Jesus did not sin. Are we good? Right? Because there's this people that will take this passage and spin it out of context. And Jesus can, he's just like, man, he's like one of you. Like, like he, he sinned too. He wasn't, he wasn't God. He was, no, that, that's not what this passage is saying. That he did not sin, but he can sympathize with our weakness. So what then is our weakness? It's our propensity to sin. So our weakness and where we separated from Christ is he felt the temptation to sin, but he didn't. We did. We do and we will. So, so let's just kind of understand for what this is. Here's a few instances where Jesus was tempted. See, maybe if you can agree. Uh, Jesus was tempted to lie. Anybody tempted to lie in here? He's tempted to lie so that he could save his life. He was tempted to steal after his father died. He was tempted to covet all the nice things that Zacchaeus owned. How many of you thought about that? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Walked into his house today. We sing that song all the time. But homeboy was loaded. I mean, do, just, just think about the house that Jesus walked into and all the nice things on the wall. You don't think that Jesus is tempted to be like, man, that's, that's some pretty nice stuff. To dishonor his parents, to take revenge when he was wrongfully accused, to lust. Again, I, I don't want to get too graphic here, but Mary, a prostitute, washes Jesus' feet. Do you not think that there was temptation there? But he did not sin. To pout with self-pity when disciples fell asleep in the last hour of his trial. To murmur at God, specifically when John the Baptist died within, uh, because of a dancing uh, female. And to gloat over his accusers when they could not answer his questions. So, so here's why this should be really, really good news for us this morning. Because we have an approachable high priest. When we pray... He gets it. I, I mean, we, we've all been in that situation. So um, praise God, my beautiful bride over here is now without her brace. Their turtle shell is gone. It's, yes, this recovery has been incredible. But here, can I just, can I just be candid? And, and this was not anyone in this room. I'm, I'm going to make up an illustration just to, so I won't offend anyone. But when Bree had her injury, and, and you probably, if you've lost someone, or just people say some really... Uh, just dumb stuff, trying to be helpful, trying to give counsel. So I, I'm sitting here, my wife's got a broken back. I don't know that she's going to walk again. She's got a spinal cord injury. It's like, oh, Gabe, I know what you're feeling. It's like that time when, when my cat broke her leg. I just didn't know what was going to happen. Like, what? <laughs> 
what? Like, that, that's not real, because I would have probably punched that person. Like, guy or girl, doesn't matter. This is nothing like your cat breaking her leg, bro. My wife might not walk again, but thanks for trying. Right? But, but we have that. What would it look like in our prayer life if we're confessing our sins to God and he's like, man, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what that feels like. I mean, doesn't it bring us great comfort that when we pray, we're praying to the one that was tempted. We're praying to the one that goes, I know, I know what that feels like. I know what it feels like to lose a loved one. I know what it feels like to have my best friend sell me out for silver. I know what it feels like to be wrongfully accused of all these things and have to sit there and take it. Brother, I know. Doesn't that change our approach to prayer? Doesn't that change the confidence that we have in Christ? When when we pray, we're praying to the intercessor that knows. But he didn't sin. We have that spirit in us that's whispering to us constantly what it looks like to stay true to our commitment to Christ in that moment. Changes everything because Christ has gone through it. He has been tempted in every way and still without sin. And when we meditate on that, and I urge you, I implore you to meditate on that fact this week, it will change the way that you view Christ in prayer. It'll change the way that you view your relationship with him because he knows, he's been there, he feels it, he's experienced it. Here's what John Piper says. Jesus knows the battle. He fought it all the way to the end and he defeated the monster every time. He was tested like we are, and the Bible says he is a sympathetic high priest. He does not roll his eyes at your pain or cluck his tongue at your struggle with sin. Because he knows. He knows. So in our, in our family group, which my family group meets on Monday nights, it's the best one, you should come join us. Uh, we had this discussion, and part of the question was, that's just true life. I'm on the pulpit, I can't lie. Um, we had this discussion just about what is it, what temptation of Jesus, what temptation of Jesus brings most comfort to your soul? Like, what did Jesus experience? What did he go through? Now, granted, I asked a question not so eloquently, and, and people answered in a bunch of different ways. So that one's on me. But what I meant was, what temptation of Jesus brings most comfort to your soul? And, and here, here it is for me, Luke 22, 41 through 43. Luke 22, 41 through 43. And he, being Jesus, withdrew from them. Now, this is hours before his death about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my wills, not my will, but yours be done. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, here's why this passage brings me most comfort. Because Jesus died. And that means that in that prayer, God said no. Now, maybe you haven't experienced that, and maybe you will. But the fact that Jesus got a big old honking no from God in a prayer and was tempted to go his own way, but finished that, not my wills, 
not my will, but yours, and actually did that brings me most comfort. Because one of the most painful things in my life has been the seasons where I've prayed, petitioned, gone after the Lord in prayer, and I get a no. And the temptation is for me to lose confidence in God and go do my own way. But I see Jesus not doing that. I see Jesus getting a no and trusting, holding confidence in, firm grip to the fact that God's ways are bigger than his ways. And that God was working all this together for the salvation of us in this room. So Jesus had a no in prayer and still stayed faithful. So, so what is it for you? What temptation did Jesus go through that comforts your soul? That is a warm blanket for you. That if Jesus went through this and stayed sinless, held firm to the confidence that he was tempted in the same way, that I'm going to cling to Christ in that because I can't. I'm going I'm to sin. I'm going to fall every single time. I'm going to hold fast to Christ and my commitment to him because he made it through this sinless and I just can't. So we have a sympathetic high priest that knows what it feels like and that should grow our confidence in him. And we see this lastly. Look, look at verse 16. The third way for us to hold confidence, to grow in our confidence in Christ and let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, what we see here is just evidence that it works. See, one of the hardest parts about faith is waiting is doubting, is God actually going to show up in this moment? But what we see here is a declarative sentence, not a question mark, that we may receive mercy and help and find grace to help in time of need. That our confidence in Christ, our holding firm of Christ works. He will draw near to the brokenhearted. He will give us the grace to get us through that season. He will because he sits on the throne of grace. Now I could try to explain the throne of grace, but uh, John Calvin does it way better than I ever could. So I'm going to read this. It's a rather lengthy quote, but uh, it'll be on the screen for us to see and just think through the throne of grace. Because as we do, just picture the many thrones that, that Christ could sit on, right? That he could just sit on a throne of just power, he could sit on just a throne of judgment. He could have sat on a throne of lies. Anybody the elf fans? All right, I knew someone caught that. Did not intend it, but as soon as I said it. He, he could be sitting on any throne, but he's sitting on a throne of grace, and here's what that means. The basis of this confidence is that the throne of God is not marked by a naked majesty which overpowers us, but is adorned with a new name, that of grace. This is the name that we ought always to keep in mind when we avoid the sight of God. The glory of God cannot but fill us with despair, such is the awfulness of his throne. Therefore, in order to help us lack 
help our lack of confidence, and to free our mind of all fears, the apostle closed it with grace and gives it a name which would encourage us by its sweetness. It's as if he were saying, since God has fixed his throne, a banner of grace and a fatherly love towards us, there is no reason why his majesty should warn, ward us off by approaching him. So this throne is true is a throne of power. It really is a throne of judgment. But because Christ interceding for us, it has now become a throne of grace that we should with confidence run to. But in the new covenant, Jesus' compassionate disposition invites us into intimacy with God and makes that intimacy possible. Let me read that one time because we've done nothing in what I'm about to read, right? Jesus' compassionate disposition invites us into the intimacy with God and makes that intimacy possible. So not only does he invite us in, but just inviting us in, we wouldn't come. He invites us in and makes that possible. So let me turn it on the Hebrews and then in light turn it on us. When things were going really, really south for them, were they running to the throne of grace or were they running to the throne of themselves? Because that shows where our confidence lies. Church, when things get sideways for us, are we running to the throne of grace or are we running to the throne of Gabe? We run into the throne of, insert your name. Are we putting our hope, our confidence in ourselves or are we unashamedly running to our Father, sitting on the throne of grace and making all of our petitions, everything known to him, so that we can receive grace and mercy in the right time? I mean, as a pastor, one of the things I deal with often is this bitterness and resentment towards God. And every time, uh, 90% of the time, when I start pressing in, here's the reality. Tell me about your prayer life. Tell me about your pursuit of God. Tell me about your time in the Word. Well, none of that's existent. Okay. So, so is God being distant from you, or are you being distant from Him? Are you solving this on your own power, or are you running to the throne of grace? Because I guarantee you, if you are, if you hold fast to that commitment, your confidence in God will grow. Because he's going to give you the mercy and grace in your time of need. Now, as we start to, uh, I would say, land the plane, but last time I said land the plane, Brett Kearns poetically told me that I said that and then took a couple more laps around the airport. So uh, I'm just going to keep talking. As we continue to preach, here's the, here's the question. Because the skeptics in us would say, well, I'm just not confident in anything. I have a hard time trusting in hope of Christ because I have a hard time with confidence. And I would very lovingly, pastorally push back on you and say, no, you don't. No, you don't. You don't have a problem with confidence. Your problem is where that confidence lies. Because if you have a reliable car, you don't doubt that that car is going to start. But those on the other side, that if you don't have a reliable car, then you deal with a confidence issue. 
See, the end result of confidence is what you ultimately struggle with. It's not whether you have a good car or not. It's what it does to your life to disrupt your plans. Jesus is saying, if you run to me on the throne of grace, I will supply grace and mercy in time of need. That you can have confidence in that, that you can apply that. So the church is only to take two actions here, to hold firm to the faith and to approach the throne of grace. The former speaks of our need for stability in the world and the latter to our need for access to resources beyond this worked in order to gain that stability. Here's what that means. No one can solve your problems other than Christ. So when you think through what you have confidence in, no one can solve your problems apart from Christ. The hope that you have, if it's not in Christ, it's wasted. The energy that we have, if it's not in Christ, it's wasted. What I want most for me, for my family, for this church, for the elders, for the deacons, for family group leaders, for everyone, is a confidence in Christ like none other. I mean, in writing this sermon, I just kept thinking and dreaming and praying about what that would look like. That if we held firm to our commitment to Christ and truly, truly had confidence in Christ to run to the throne of grace whenever needed, that only our hope was in Christ, church, would you just dream with me what that would look like? It's just, it's just kind of hard. So, so here's my question for us this morning. Where does your confidence lie? It's a simple question, but it is a radical one if you really take access to it. Is it in yourself, in the world, spouse, money, possessions, career, hope of a future career? All of those are counterfeit. All of those will not last. Ephesians 3, 11 through 13 puts it this way. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. And Paul's word is my prayer for us this morning as we close, that I'm asking you not to lose heart, but have boldness and access with confidence through our faith. So let us pray. Father, would you forgive us? That your word is very clear to hold fast to our commitment, hold fast to our confession of who you are, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and with confidence draw near to you. But Father, more often than not, our lives look like holding loosely our confession of you. I'm 
confidence draw near to our own ways of thinking, our own ways of doing things. And so, Father, right now in this moment, I ask for you to speak to our hearts. Church, I'm asking you to listen. Where does our confidence lie this morning? Where do we put our hope in that's not you? Where do we put our pride in? What are we holding fast to? Can we really sing the old psalm? Take the world, but give me Jesus. Can we really sing that? Do we hold so close to you? Do we hold so tight to you, our confession, our hope, that nothing else matters? Father, we know as in reading through Hebrews that they were so dangerously close to turning their back on you, to apostasy, to denying the Trinity, that their confidence was so wavering that they were about to call it quits. And I'm, I've been there, I know many of us in this room have been there So, Father, would you show us that it's us, it's our sin that's leading us there, that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. You have not changed, you have not moved, you have not wavered. It's us finding our hope, it's us holding loosely of our confession and putting our confidence in anything else other than you that has led us to that point. So, Father, would we... Hold tight to the confession that you are the great high priest, that you are the apostle that was sent to us for the propitiation of our sins. And when we gain confidence in that, when we see the fruit of that as our proclamation of the gospel turns this world upside down. Father, we love you. It's your name that we pray. Amen.